0: Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community... For those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. Hang on just a sec. We are in desperate need of a producer, which basically means you help us contact and schedule our guests, collect information, and keep Bill and me from embarrassing ourselves behind the scenes. If this is something you're interested in doing and would like to find out more Please contact us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion dot org. Write producer in the subject line, and you've got our attention. All right, take it away, Tim and Bill. So, Bill, we finally got some women on this show after a long string of male guests.
1: Yes, the um we were drowning in testosterone.
0: <laughs> yes, we were, but now as to
1: that's not light- my that's not my problem since I'm on medication to stop testosterone, but. That's a different story altogether.
0: Well, I am drowning in testosterone. And uh, to prove how progressive we white privileged men are, we finally got some women. And and I've always appreciated the female perspective. Oh, absolutely. Except when I was married to one. So (laughs) before we get into the interview with our guests, if anyone has been paying attention to the news lately, you've probably heard about this massive Catholic sex ring in Pennsylvania. Mm. And the grand jury put out a 1,356 page report, which is online. It investigates six dioceses, which I guess is—I don't know what that's—is that a plural for something? I don't know. But that accounted for 54 of Pennsylvania's 67 counties. And in this report, they said that there were credible allegations against over 3,000 predator priests and over 1,000 identifiable child victims. And they said that that real number of child victims whose records were probably lost or they were just afraid to come forward, is in the thousands. And we have a a link to this. I don't know if we can get this in the show notes, Bill, but we can. Yes, yes, I have it.
1: I have it. It'll be there.
0: So the question came up at home and in other conversations I've seen on social media is how can people, parents especially, remain part of the Catholic Church, send their money to the Catholic Church, and even allow their children to remain under the care of priests and leaders who have a long history of predatory behavior? What are your thoughts, Bill?
1: Ever since the story broke, I've been reading. Uh, I, I did not. I, I, I confess, I did not read the thirteen hundred page trial notes because I am. I, I right after I finished War and Peace, but I, I read summary of it, and then I've read articles by several people since then, just kind of trying to get a perspective because I had some of the same questions that you had, and I'm reading people giving firsthand reports of what they think mostly catholics I, I i kind of wanted to read what catholics were saying about it and and i've seen such interesting uh mental emotional spiritual gymnastics and i started jotting down some of the some of the things i was seeing and, and categorized them I, I, and and you being the cognitive expert will will probably laugh at my my rudimentary concepts, but one that I noted was what I call distancing, where people would say, but, well, it happened so long ago. It's just now coming to light, but it happened so long ago. Are people who are able to separate or compartmentalize it, well, the priests are not the church. they're Or the church and my faith are separate. And some were able to rationalize by saying, well, the church is not perfect and the priests are not perfect. I've seen it And not just in Catholic churches. Uh, In my my career of many years in the ministry, I had the opportunity of kind of mediating church conflicts, meeting with pastors or meeting with church members. And and I would see the same kind of dynamic where people are saying, well, uh, the pastor is not my faith. My faith is not in the pastor. The pastor is not the same as my church. So they're able to compartmentalize it but one of the things i've noticed in in catholics talking about it is they do have this inseparable connection it's part of catholic theology the church and the faith are one and the same if i abandon the church i've abandoned my faith i've abandoned god uh, god will not forgive me in fact i wrote down a quote from a catholic blogger uh, which i'm not going to mention their name but they said My personal relationship with Jesus is dependent upon me, but the truth that nurtures and guides that relationship is dependent upon the church, guided for all times by the Holy Spirit. As said above, at its core, Christianity is about the love of a father for his child and the child returning. Why do I remain loyal to the Catholic Church until my last breath? Because she is Christ's body his voice of truth, because it's loyalty to Christ himself. So there is a lot of this kind of idea that I can't separate from the church, regardless of what these priests have done, because they don't see it about the priests. They see it about their faith and their concept of who Christ is.
0: Which I think all of us do. I think all of us, when we were raised in that environment, feel the same way. It's when you see somebody who, quote unquote, falls or leaves the church, mm-hmm. it's easy to separate that person from the rest of us. They couldn't make it. They were deceived by the devil. Yes. That person wasn't following what the Bible actually says. And so we separate them from the rest of us and excuse what they've done. And don't ask them. Mm-hmm. We don't go to them and ask, what no. are the issues? Oh, do, you have, no. do you have a problem with the theology? Or we we don't ask any of that. We just think, oh, that yeah. poor soul.
1: We don't do ex- exit interviews.
0: We never do exit <laughs> interviews. So, I, you know, I, I think there is a, a part of that in all of us with any kind of faith. And, and even you can look at, look at this politically is that our side is right. And if somebody defects from our side, for example, let's say James Comey from the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. they will turn against him really quickly.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because we have to, we have to be right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as, as somebody who studied cognition, I kind of wanted to talk about why this is the case, because we all sit around scratching our heads and it's easy to look at the church from an outside perspective and say, these people are, are nuts. These people have lost their minds. And how can they con- continue to believe this? But I just want to explain how this works. So throughout our childhood, we develop what is called a cognitive schema, which is a mental map to help us make sense of our world. And just like when, when you get up in the morning and you go to work, you intuitively take the same route, you know, the landmarks, you know, how bad traffic will be. And you know, when you have to leave. And in fact, you've probably left your house on one or more occasions on a Saturday morning to go run an errand and then mindlessly found yourself on the way to work. So the neural pathway in our brains that's deeply ingrained runs on autopilot and you don't have to think about it. It just happens automatically. Our beliefs are part of that mental map. We base our decisions, our thoughts, and our actions on what we believe. For me, it was marrying a woman because my religious beliefs told me that it was impossible to be gay and a Christian. I voted as a conservative because my religious beliefs told me that conservatives were more in line with my biblical worldview. Beliefs like our day-to-day activities are ingrained in those neural pathways. Even when we try to change them, they have literally become physiological, just like forcing ourselves to not go to work on a Saturday when we're headed down that familiar road. We have to force ourselves to think or believe differently. When we change our minds, we are literally forging a new neural pathway and changing our belief systems is a massive, or dare I say, impossible undertaking without some sort of a catastrophic event that is personal, um, or our beliefs are just, just slowly change over time as we gain experience and question those beliefs in small chunks. But it generally does not happen overnight. So, learning that the Catholic Church runs a systematic sex ring is catastrophic, but as long as I can say, well, those priests weren't following God's Word, and my family was nowhere, nowhere near those people over there, then I can lull myself into this false sense of security. The purpose isn't to fool ourselves, but it's really to create a barrier where our beliefs remain intact, and I can feel psychologically safe. And this is where the cognitive dissonance comes in. So I can feel good about sending money to the Catholic Church because I believe the Catholic Church is what God designed and ordained, even though the Catholic Church has a long history of child abuse. You know, we, we have to remember that this is evolutionary. We're naturally xenophobic and tribal because that's how we kept ourselves safe from predators and enemies. And if we were aware of all of the cognitive dissonance that we have all the time, we wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So our brains create this barrier that keeps us psychologically safe, and it makes us feel comfortable, and that's how we navigate our world. And I think, you know, for for you and I, or even others that have left the faith or have changed how we believe or have questioned those beliefs, it was likely a very long process. Almost none of us got up the next morning and said, nah. None yeah. of it's true. I'm going to move on. Right. <laughs> Next. It was a, exactly. Yeah. It, it was a very long process. And it's those things that chip away at us. But at some point, it has to become it has to become personal. At some point, it, there just has to be something about it that sits wrong. And it sits wrong long enough where we begin to change our worldview. But it makes perfect sense from that perspective on why they stay and why any of us stay.
1: And we've seen in just the interviews we've done, people who have. Who have come out of, uh, of some, some fairly extreme religious backgrounds, the leadership within those groups and, and those religions or those organizations are we're told that we shouldn't question them. They are put there for a reason. They are they are our authorities. So in the process of of rethinking our faith and and reexamining what we believe, it involves at some point saying. Oh, my goodness, my leaders have deceived me. They're wrong. They're mistaken. Uh, Or they're, you know, they're having sex rings. So it's a very uh, it's part of the process, but it's and it's and it's very difficult part of the process because we're told to respect and to revere and to submit to our leaders.
0: I thought only in the context of my faith as somebody who grew up in the church. I could critically think, and I'm an analytical person by nature, but I, I only did it in the context of my faith. I didn't look at the the leaders so much lying to me, even going through conversion therapy. I didn't think that I was being lied to. I thought we were all upholding the same belief system. Mm-hmm. Personally, it was just coming to a place of realizing that my feelings and emotions and all the things that I, I was following to believe God were not true, mm-hmm. and when I thought back about my leaders and about the church, I I had positive experiences. I had family in the church. Now, you know, when I was abandoned later by them, but I rethought what was our friendship based on. And it was, again, it was, you know, it was based on these belief systems that we all hold to be true. But I didn't feel like I was being deceived by the leadership per se. I really felt like they believed it. Not to say clearly that all leadership is pure of heart, but I would say, my experience in my church, it was pure heart. We really honestly believed what we were doing and what we preached.
1: yeah, and but in our in our rethinking, as we rethink at some point, then we have to say, we're going against what leaders have told us, whether they were pure in intention, whether they believed what they believed sincerely. We are kind of a different place. We're saying, I'm right, they're wrong. Whether they intended to be or not, that's what I'm saying is there comes this point where Catholics have to look at their priest and say, They're doing something that is horrible. And right. and so we are in some ways going against the leaders that we have in our lives.
0: Right. We are in some way. I, I don't know if I don't I don't know if we process it that deeply, to be honest. I, I don't know. I, I mean I think we all go through our own process, mm-hmm. but I don't know if we if all of us initially go through that process together, it, because, you know, you know, when you first start this process of rethinking it, first, you think it's me. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with me. I can't seem to pull this thing together and it seems to be working for other people, but it's not working for me. So it's my fault, my problem. Right.
1: Well, I, yeah, And that's what I'm saying. Just in my journey, what I remember is uh, the more I began to ask these questions and the more I became convinced of what I was seeing and what wasn't working for me and what I didn't believe. Then I remember looking at these leaders going, "But I respect them, I admire them, Some of them I loved dearly, and I felt so disloyal to what I had been taught and and how I had been raised. it was I remember distinctly taking into account the the leadership in my life.
0: Yes, and then you know at first, we're pitied, and then we pity them."
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we move to why don't you stop? Why can't you see this? So then we flip yeah, to the other side, and, and we can be just as rigid as they are on on that. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting process, but it's horrible reading uh, what happened in the in the Catholic Church and what those children went through. It broke my heart as I was reading some of the summaries. I'm glad that it's spurring some some interest. I read that uh, like 45 different states are now going to seek help from Pennsylvania authorities on how to conduct the same kind of investigations in their own states. So hopefully this will spread because beyond everything else, the, the religious aspect aside, the children need to be protected. Absolutely.
0: It's infuriating to think that we can just hide this underneath some kind of a religious cover and some for some reason it's okay.
1: Yeah, and they have obviously been hiding it since the forties, which yes. is horrible under so many popes and so many cardinals. And I think that is appalling. And I think Catholics should ask themselves some very serious questions. I'm in no position to tell anyone, you know, where they should be in their faith, but if you're not asking serious questions, then I think you are at least complicit with this.
0: Absolutely, totally agree. Well, we've covered that,
1: <laughs> and now my blood pressure is up. So.
0: <laughs> now your blood pressure is up. You know, I, I would love to hear from people. I, you know, if you Absolutely. have thoughts on this, send us an email. Yes, recovering from Dot podcast.org.
1: Yeah, and if you have questions for us about these issues, uh, any issue we cover, send us, and we will we'll answer it on air. We'll. Try to get the answer, we can't necessarily speak to some of the specific experiences of our guests, but if you have questions for us, we will gladly respond to those.
0: We are very excited to have Sarah Roxdale visiting with us, and just let me give a, a brief introduction here. So, Sarah Ragsdale is the content creator behind the popular Sarah Roxdale YouTube channel and blog. So, I don't know if I just said that wrong because I know we're supposed to go one, I'm just confused. <laughs> We, we can straighten this out later. Sarah has gained quite the following on a wide range of topics that include beauty, fashion, fitness, and lifestyle. But she also talks about self-help, religion, atheism, and current events. With her initial focus on beauty videos, Sarah, who won the Rimmel London Look Contest, became the NYX Cosmetics Face Award finalist two years in a row. And that's when she realized that she could use her platform to talk about the things that really mattered to her. And spark a conversation. So, Sarah, Thank you so welcome much to for our show. Me.
1: We're so glad you're here.
0: We are. And you have some really fascinating videos. I, I have to be honest, I didn't look at the cosmetic ones, but <laughs> yeah, I, I did look I at the religion the ones. And ones to you. I know, Bill, but I'm pretty yeah. confident in how I do I <laughs> it. Your hairstyle
1: has been the same as long as I've known you.
0: Well, that's true, but it, it works for me. There's no no reason to change now. So, Sarah, can you? um? Tell us about yourself. Tell us where you were sure. born and raised. And-
2: um, yeah, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, actually, and I now live in California, but I was raised Pentecostal from the time I was adopted at, I was five weeks old, so I grew up in church, and speaking in tongues, that was completely normal to me, just devoting hours of your week to attending church and church services and events. I also went to a private school, um, Springfield Lutheran. I went there from the time I was about four until I was twelve. And then I was homeschooled after that. So I didn't go to high school. I actually I remember going to this Christian bookstore with my parents. It was called Mardell's. I'm not sure if it's still there or not, but I, I went there to Mardell's. get my I <laughs> I went there to get my books for studying <laughs> at school. Or not at school, at you know, homeschooled. Homeschool. Yeah. And so you can imagine like the lack of science education there. But anyway um that's kind of like my upbringing um, but now I'm a, a blogger and a youtuber and I started with making like beauty and fashion videos and I've been doing this for about six years now so my interests have really changed and I like talking now more on just a wide variety of topics and I think it makes it more interesting and fun and when I started my YouTube channel I was actually a Christian at the time and that changed only a few years ago I started questioning things and I felt like it was okay for me to question things. And that took a long time to actually work through. Yeah, I started just thinking for myself, really. And so now I, I kind of talk about atheism, religion. I still do beauty and that kind of thing. But I also talk about trauma and current events. So it's kind of just a mixture. It's a, an amalgam of things.
1: Which is, which is interesting. I, th- mm-hmm. You said you were when you started it, you were still uh, identified as a Christian. And mm-hmm. you changed was that jarring to the people who were following you at the time? Yes,
2: I got a lot of backlash <laughs> actually <laughs> I, when I can't I realized...
1: imagine that I can't imagine
2: <laughs> yeah i got actually got some angry emails from parents because a lot of my following was like these young girls, you know, and being someone here in america it seems more dominating um Christ- like Christianity so I got a lot of pushback. I put out my first like atheist video. I put out a video just talking about misconceptions of atheism, what atheism means and what it's not. I was just saying, I, I'm not convinced a God exists. And I broke it down into like, I think it's like a four minute video. And I had a lot of people unsubscribe. I had some angry emails and messages from people, but I also got a lot of support. Actually, um, Hemet Mehta, he blogged about that video and he put it up on patheos.com. And I thought that was really cool to get that support because I felt crushed after putting that video out because it was this big scary thing for me to talk about. And then getting pushback for it instantly, but then getting support right after that. That was really cool.
0: Have you And you said go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. I, I was just gonna ask if your your supporters have increased or if you're getting you're getting more clicks now than before because of your you've just mm-hmm. I guess become more authentic. You're really right. talking about I have what's been important getting to you.
2: More engagement. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to Talk about topics that were less trivial. I wanted to talk about things that I'm passionate about, things that matter, things that I care about, but also bring in some of the light content too, because sometimes it can be hard. If I am talking about, um, well, I have history with child childhood sexual abuse, so I'll I'll talk about that in a video. But it's nice to be able to go back to something light, just for like I guess my well being is I can dip into these deeper topics and then I can kind of back off for a little bit and then get back into it. But I have gotten more support from people who like it when I talk about these issues and they find them helpful. So that's that's the main thing I wanted. I just wanted to create content that was helpful because I've turned to the Internet before when I just wanted to find answers, when I wanted to find support. Um, so I wanted to do something like that for others.
1: And you, you said on one of your videos when you first began talk when you first talked about becoming an atheist, being an atheist, then you said you backed off of it for a while and didn't mm-hmm. talk about it. It was like I said right. it, and I'm not going to talk about it. And 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 I think that's kind of healing. And you said the same when you first talked about uh, being a sexual abuse survivor. You talked about mm-hmm. it, and then you didn't feel like talking about it again. But then you've gradually been able to to be more and more open about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's cool. It's it really has been a healing process, and. That's one of the things I really like about recovering from religion is that they offer so much support. You have peer support and you also have professional support and you're you're able to talk to someone who is, um, and I know you can't say you're a secular therapist. I know that's, you're not allowed to do that really if you're a therapist, but I think it's cool that recovering from religion offers professional therapy for people to actually talk to someone who's not going to judge you, who is not religious, who is evidence-based, and that can really help with perspective. But just get having that little bit of time and then being able to uh, reflect on things and then really deciding, no, this is what I want to do. I want to help people if I can. So yeah, it, it's taken some time, but now I'm back into it. <laughs> and I think <laughs> also something that kind of stuck out with me too, I think just coming from religion was a couple Bible verses. Actually, when it talks about women who are not allowed to speak, really, it's, uh, I think it's First Timothy 2.12, when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. And then again, in First 1 Corinthians 14.34, it says, women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. And that, on top of the sexual abuse, it really made me feel like I should should not use my voice. So I'm just now kind of learning how to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. One, on one of your videos, I actually paused it, rewound it because I had to write down, uh, I'm going to quote you to you right now. Okay. You, you said, as a girl growing up in the Christian religion, I did not feel empowered. I felt weak and small, feeling ashamed just by being female. Getting the sense your voice doesn't matter. Right. That's powerful, right?
2: Sarah. Right. It still kind of affects me sometimes when people ask my opinion about things. It's it's interesting because I want to answer them, but then I I, I kind of double down. But I think no, I they asked, I can <laughs> I can say my opinion. But that's still I find that still kind of affecting me sometimes, which is unfortunate. But we're working through it. Hey.
1: <laughs> well, I think all of us who come from this very conservative, very rigid rigid background. We are taught certain things that uh, and you use the term regularly in your in your videos. Indoctrinated, we have this mindset, and it's very difficult to overcome some of those old tapes in our head.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Because I mean, being indoctrinated, I I wasn't taught to think for myself. I mean, that's what indoctrination is. You don't you don't learn critical thinking skills. So I think it takes years to kind of break out of that. And I remember when I first learned about what indoctrination was, I was actually listening to the atheist experience and (laughs) I was listening to people like Tracy Harris and Matt Dillhoney. And I was like, oh, that happened to me. It was like I had this shock of that happened to me. So I I kind of had to wrap my brain around that.
0: (laughs) You've had some crazy stuff, Sarah, that that you talk about, especially your Mm -hmm. Jesus camp experience. Was that... Normal. I mean, were in your area? Did did other people outside of your your church experience that, or had you ever encountered that before, or was your experience unique? I
2: feel like. Do you think this was unique? The Jesus Camp experience that was there was. I actually left Springfield, Missouri, and I had just turned eighteen, so all of my friends were going, all of my church friends, because I didn't have any friends outside of um, church anymore because I was homeschooled. I did do some theater, so I did have friends, just limited friends outside of the church. But I think this was very unique because we had no idea what we were getting into, and the pastors just made it sound fun. So actually, I left Springfield, Missouri, and I attended this Christian college in Griffin, Georgia. And at the time, it was called Master School of Ministry, which kind of sounds silly to me. It sounds like something from like, I'm, I'm going to Hogwarts, like in Harry Potter, Um, But it wasn't like that at all. Um, But it's now called Segu Valor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But it stands for Southwestern Assemblies of God University. And it was basically a Bible camp hazing experience. But I I think it was unique.
0: Growing up the way that you did, were your parents aware of what was happening? And do you feel like they normalized what was happening?
2: I think they didn't know what was happening and, but when they heard about what was happening, they kind of normalized it because I remember coming back from the camp experience and I was calling them from the hospital because I was actually, I left that camp experience and I was placed on suicide watch at a hospital and I called them from there. And that's when it's kind of like they woke up and realized that I needed help. That was the last resort was me just trying to get out of that experience so
1: I, I, I've never I've never been to a Jesus camp mm-hmm. I, I saw the documentary is it was yours like that oh, can you right. tell us something about it sure
2: sure actually that Jesus camp documentary that's like that's my childhood like
1: oh, oh my <laughs> that, was, that oh was, my. was like
2: church camp every summer that that kind of thing um but this Jesus camp it was it was really for like teenagers like I don't know we, most of us were about 18 to I say I want to say like 25. So I remember once I got landed in Griffin, Georgia, I remember orientation. The pastors made the students sign like this agreement, giving them our permission to attend this camp. And they, they were the ones that called it boot camp. But we would not know where we were going. We would not know when we were going to be taken. And we, we didn't know what we were going to be doing at this camp. Again, this was kind of like a hazing experience. But they related this to the rapture, saying that when Jesus comes back, you're not gonna know. You just have to be ready. So we had some rules attending the camp. Like we were not allowed to bring anything other than like one personal item and also a bag of sugar that had to be duct taped and placed in a backpack. And we were not allowed to take that backpack off the entire time we're at this camp. So that that backpack is now a part of your body. Um, but one night, I think this was the third week I was in school. So we're just new to this school and we're we're learning who everyone is and names and all that, but I think it was the third week of school. It was around midnight. We woke up to the sounds of the pastors yelling and banging on the dorm rooms and telling us that we were leaving that night. So when I got downstairs, all of my classmates were doing like all these various exercises while the pastors were screaming at them until every student was gathered down there. So after that, we were put onto a bus. And then while we were on the bus, and the whole time during camp, we're not allowed to fall asleep. Now, coming back from the camp, we were there for three days. So the whole time we were not allowed to fall asleep. We didn't know that going into this. So <laughs> it's just, it, it's bizarre. But I remember if any of us were caught dozing off, the pastors would just start screaming in our faces and then we'd be forced to do more exercises. So it was just a lot of working out. And we were told afterwards That they ran us straight for twenty four hours, and the only time we were allowed to stop and take breaks was when the pastors had us eat like this unflavored gloopy oatmeal, or when they played like these strange mind games on us. So, like for example, there was one night we were taken to a room where there were pillows on the floor, and there were like they turned the lights out, and there was this large TV in the corner of the room, and the pastors they played this old boring documentary. And we were told we were not allowed to fall asleep. So of course, as soon as someone started to fall asleep, the pastors just turned the lights on. They started screaming at us again, and we were forced to run up and down this hill that was right outside the building. So they did various other games similar to that, but the whole time it was basically rigorous workouts, and we were not allowed to stop. Um, We were not allowed to ask questions. And if we did, we would be forced to do more workouts. So when I got back from that boot camp experience, again, it lasted for three days. That's when I called my parents and I told them what happened. And it kind of normalized it by saying, well, you know, you're at this new school. You left Missouri. You're now in Georgia. So that's going to take some time to transition. Like you you left home. You're away for college. You just need to give it more time. So (laughs) at the same time, I was also talking to this Christian counselor at the church school. This school is actually in a church. yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. That, says, that says so much. It says
2: a lot right there. Um, <laughs> but I remember talking to this Christian counselor and I told her I was depressed and that I was suicidal. I told her how I planned to kill myself. And she her response to me was that I needed to stop listening to Satan. She told me, you're listening to Satan. He's putting these thoughts in your head. You need to listen to God. So after that, I used self-harm to show the pastors how serious I was. So I actually, I ended up cutting the words love me into my forearm. And I actually did it in morning chapel. Like we were in morning chapel and chapel every morning lasted for two hours from seven to nine. And I was kind of hoping someone would stop me or see me. No one did. And I let that experience sink in for about a day. And then I went to the pastors after that and showed them my scars. And they decided to put me in a dorm room with an older student just to keep an eye on me. And that just was not good enough for me. I was telling people that I needed to leave. So I felt like I was being held there against my will.
1: It all sounds like uh, torture techniques. Right. Uh, the, the sleep deprivation, the the lights, the TV, the screaming, mm-hmm. the food, everything sounds like torture techniques that, that militaries use on prisoners of war. It sounds horrible.
2: Right. That's actually a response I got from... Some people that are ex-military, they were telling me in comments of that video, because I have this in a video on my YouTube channel, this Jesus Camp experience, and they were saying, you know, the difference is when you go and do that and train, there's actually doctors there for you, and you can opt out. But with your experience, you didn't get that, like a psychologist and also like a physician. But um, yeah, and the whole thing with the food was if you're a missionary and you go you know, somewhere and you're, you're, you're speaking the gospel, you're sharing God's word um, and you're, and you're given food. You have to be able to eat all that food regardless if you like it or not. And it would be very disrespectful if you were to not eat all the food. For some reason they kept, they liked to pick on me. So they kept placing more and more food on my plate. And I found that so I was, uh, that experience made me angry, obviously. Um, But (laughs) Um I remember after the camp experience I was having a panic attack one Sunday morning and I told one of the pastors that I was I was thinking of killing myself and he told me to wait right wait right there cuz he was going to go get help. So as soon as he left I I went to the women's bathroom and I just locked myself in a stall and I just cried because I felt like I had no one to turn to and I didn't think there was any way out. But eventually one of my friends found me. And I was taken to a hospital and I was placed on suicide watch for a few days. And then that's when I called my parents again. And that's when they realized I would oh, she's serious. Like <laughs> she needs help.
0: What's going through your mind at this point, Sarah, when all of these things are happening, where were you with your belief about God, with what you thought of God? What, I, what were you feeling and thinking?
2: I felt on one hand, it was kind of a test, but then I also thought, how could, how could a God be cruel. Like this seemed like, it seemed as if the pastors were just enjoying doing this to the students. And I was wondering how, how could anyone let this happen? They're just like bystanders watching these pastors torment these, I mean, fresh adults, I guess. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I remember questioning my faith too. And when I did talk to that Christian counselor, something clicked in that moment when she said, you're, you're listening to Satan. You're, you're not listening to God. Something when she said that, it made me instantly think, whoa, I'm I'm somewhere deep where I don't want to be. And maybe this is all wrong. So I, I think I did start questioning things then, but it was like I, I wasn't really allowing myself to go there because it was too scary of an idea to question your faith. So I think I, I kind of was going back and forth. <laughs>
0: What did you do at that point with your upbringing? You're raised in church, you have all these experiences, and I know in the Pentecostal faith, worship is a large part of that experiential faith. What did that do for you? Were you able to put the pieces together? Were you able to pull back and think about things? Or my
2: mind was. where was
0: your mind? I
2: remember just being angry, really, because I remember coming back from Georgia and being back in Missouri and... The church kind of responded to me like, well, not everyone, you know, it's it's not everyone's path to go to college. That's kind of how they looked at it. And that made me more upset. I was like, it, as if that mm. was the problem. Wow. But I remember coming back from that experience and being even more radical, like Benny Hinn crusade radical, speaking in tongues and worship service services and like being loud about it and jumping up and down and thinking... No, I'm I'm even more fueled for God in a way. And my youth pastor was so proud of me and that I think that added to this is like having more support for being more extreme.
1: Do you think it was an attempt to overcome the trauma of what you'd gone through if I if I'm more energetic, if I'm more committed, if I'm more enthusiastic, I'll push back that trauma?
2: Possibly. I think that might be possible. I remember the church I went to was an assemblies of God. And then once I started being more radical and my youth pastor was thinking, you know, now, now the church is rejecting me because I'm being too radical, but my youth pastor was loving it. He's like, maybe you should go to this other church and try that out. Cause he was actually leaving that same church as well. Um, it's actually James River assembly. That's where I went. And I I think in a strange way, that was a, a way for me to, uh, kind of push away what happened and just dive more into my faith. And when I did start to question things, it was too scary. I just couldn't.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's part of the cognitive dissonance, right? We, rather than pull away, we we go in further. I, and I tell part of my own story of when my wife left and, you know, I'd been in ex ministry and done all these things. And I'm sitting here and just thinking, mm-hmm. okay, well, I didn't do it right. I didn't do it correctly. I didn't connect in the in this way, so let me go back again. Let me try this again and try to fit these experiences into something that's going to make right. more sense right. in my religious life mm-hmm.
1: now in your in your story in in your YouTube videos, you also talk about being a victim of sexual abuse. This was younger a- am I correct when you were mm-hmm. much younger?
2: I was about four when that started, and then it ended when I was about ten, so it went on for pretty. for a long time, went on for years, but it was something that happened within the family. And I never thought I would have told anyone, honestly. And then I finally did. I actually told one of my friends from church and he told me, if you don't tell your parents, I'm going to tell them. And so I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't going to let that happen. Um, so I was 13 at the time when I, I finally told my mom, um, what was happening. I didn't, I actually couldn't tell her what was really happening. I told her I was molested and her response was, were you raped? And at the time, I didn't even know what that word meant. I, I honestly thought that word meant, were you like killed or something? And I, and I thought, no, I'm right here. I'm fine. I'm fine. But later on, I was able to tell her more of what happened. And it, it was rape. And it was repeated. And that went on for years, um, ever since I was little. So, But at at the time, when I told my family, they didn't know... That was kind of their response. Well, was she was what was she raped? That was like the instant thing. Uh and then I I later came to find out that it was just very normalized. And it's as if my family pushed me away after that. Um, my distant family anyway. My mom has always been supportive. Um, my dad was supportive of me, my brother. But the rest of my family, they just wanted me to not bring it up. Everything just needs to be sweeped under the rug. And I actually found out later that this has happened with other um, people in my family. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's something people like to just keep quiet about.
0: So your extended family is also in the church?
2: They, yes. And I, I don't have much of a relationship with them, uh, to be honest. Um, they were also in like St. Louis, Missouri, while I was in Springfield, Missouri. But um, yeah, I think they were Baptist. And they're, they're, yeah, they're in the church. But my my family, my mom, my dad, and my brother and I, we were all raised Pentecostal. So it's a little little different.
0: <laughs> What's your relationship like with your family now?
2: My family now, it's, it's great. Um, my dad actually passed away in 2010. But my mom and my brother they're still in Springfield, Missouri, and it's it's grown and it's gotten better as I've gotten older.
0: What do they think of what you do?
2: They, uh, <laughs> um, I've recently heard from my mom and my brother separately that they they both do support me, and I was actually kind of shocked to hear that um, because when I first put out my like the first atheist video that I put out, um, I got a- some pushback from my family. My brother was more of, you know, how could you do that? I can't believe you, you know, you're you're hurting mom, that kind of thing. And my mom was deeply upset. And now, she kind of just ignores those videos. We talk about other things. So, again, it's something we just don't talk about. Um, it's like a, a thing.
1: I, I have a mom. I have a mom like that. Uh
2: huh. Yeah. So we just keep it kind of light. Talk about other yep. things. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But they have told me recently that, you know, we love you, we support you. But that was also kind of shocking to hear because I didn't know that I had their support. So I don't know.
1: Well, and, and you've taken your own experiences of being a sexual abuse survivor. And, and, and let, me, let me just stop there because I wanted to ask a question. Uh, the term victim, is that for somebody with sexual abuse, does the term victim, do you, you, do you prefer that term or some other term?
2: You know what? I've gone back and forth on this um, victim. Because
1: um, I, I get it with you know, because people, mm-hmm. uh, as a as someone with cancer, they say you're a cancer victim, mm-hmm. and that I, I cringe when you when I hear that. And oh, I, right. I was Just curious how that works for for you.
2: Yeah, I think of like warrior. That sounds better. <laughs> like yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I've also heard like the term survivor, and I think it's like that one. Yeah. Um, but I, I instantly think warrior. I think that sounds cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you definitely are. And you've taken that experience and you've in your videos, you talk about uh, helping people look for the red flags of trauma and what to look for, how to handle it. And I think that's very brave and courageous on your part to try to help other people.
2: Right. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, I plan to make some more videos kind of like that upcoming this year. So just diving more into it. <laughs>
0: well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and ask you some more questions. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S., With our secular therapy project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the volunteer tab.
1: The first thing that we that that I saw that you had done, somebody had recommended to me that we watch your video about the fear of hell. And so that was the first thing I saw by you. Tell me about making that. And again, I'm always interested in pushback from people when you do something like that, because that is a topic that people fall on one side or the other and very rarely is it neutral.
2: Right. That's exactly it. Because you look at some of the comments, and it is extremely divided. it's either for it or against it. yeah, I remember starting to make that video because I thought, well, this would be helpful to people because I remember when I really struggled with the fear of hell, and even after I left my religion uh, that I had grew up being indoctrinated into, even after like years of not being a part of that anymore, I still found myself fearing hell and just this place of life after death, a place of evil and everlasting suffering where the wicked are sent after death. That idea just really stuck with me for a long, long time. So I thought, you know what, this would be helpful. So I I started writing out some points. I kind of write a bit in my journal quite a bit. And I started breaking down this idea into just several points. I was thinking about you know, when I was introduced to this idea of hell and who told me about this idea of hell and how long I I believed in a hell. And once you start breaking all of those memories down, you start to realizing a fear of hell really isn't going to go away overnight because this fear has been built up for however long. And it also depends, I think too, it's crucial on who told you about hell. For me, it was my dad. And He really, really believed that some people were going to go to heaven, some people were going to go to hell. So yeah, this fear had just been built up for so long, so it took a while to be able to tear it down. So I started making this video, and as soon as I put it up, I had people again for it or against it, um, but I've actually had a lot of kind of threatening comments on that video. And people are just being really upset. Or saying you need mm-hmm. to go to you need to come to God before it's too late, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I'm, it, it's not appreciated. Um, but thanks for the friend. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is interesting that it is such a a focal point in so much of conservative faith. To me, it's just another example of how we use a particular teaching mm-hmm. to. To control people, right? Because fear, fear does control people. Mm-hmm. Fear makes people do a certain thing. If we need them to fill the pews or fill the offering plates,
2: mm-hmm.
1: fear is a great way to do it.
2: That is, that's right.
0: And like you said, Sarah, in your video, is that there are people who become atheists, and this fear of hell grips them. And even though they have gone past that that way of thinking, it it stays with them. I actually address this in my book where I talk about where it comes from. I went all the way back to find out where do we, where do we even have this idea of the devil and hell and where did that come from? And it's, it's very ancient, but Mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't start out as evil as it became, you know, with Dante's Inferno, as you mentioned in the video, that was where he really colored what hell looked like. And it was Mm -hmm. picked up and these religious leaders ran with it and it became something that we're indoctrinated with very early on. Like you call out in your video, you talk about, how it just doesn't make logical sense. Why would this loving God throw right. you in hell for all of eternity where you're going to suffer for eternity?
2: Exactly. Right. It, it was like, did God create me or anyone to be evil? I mean, I'm not immoral. Right. I'm not evil. I'm not cruel. And the injustice of hell is absurd at this so-called loving and caring God creating a hell for anyone who chooses not to love or follow him. It's a, it's a threat and that's menacing.
0: Well, and as a dad, quite honestly, when I started to rethink my faith, that was one of the things I thought about with my children: is there anything that they could do that I would say, you know what, I'm going to torture you for all of eternity because you've been such a bad person? And it didn't make any logical sense.
2: Right? Yeah, that's it's injustice. And I also thought about like I I do have obviously people in my life who are Christians, and they they believe that they're going going to go to heaven, and they also believe that I'm going to go to hell. But I think, well, how can you how can you enjoy heaven? knowing that your loved ones or family members are suffering in hell for eternity. Is there like an off switch that God's going to, you know, y- you no longer care about those people anymore when you're in heaven. I don't know. Just the whole idea is just off.
0: <laughs> right. I asked that question. I remember talking to my mom once when I was younger and she just kind of shrugged her shoulders. She goes, I don't know, but got to work it out.
2: Right. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially,
0: it's, yeah. Essentially it's, it
1: is. If you believe somebody is going to hell, and you're not doing everything in your power, then then there is a complicity to that that always bothered me. Even when I was an evangelical minister, that that concept didn't didn't ring true to me. That that I could I could live any kind of a normal life thinking that people around me were going to spend all eternity being tortured for
0: just who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. You know the thing about this is it's it's the idea of shame Mm -hmm. and threat. And that it doesn't make any sense for loving God. And it's used by a lot of religious and political figures that if you don't do X, Y, Z, then you're going to go to hell or you're going to be punished, which does create a following, as we can see in the current administration. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It does create a following, but it doesn't create a lot of love. So if you're trying to get your children to love you, or you're trying to get your followers to love you, that's the last thing that you want to use in order to get their attention, right? And, and, right. and it, it's so contrary to this idea of a loving God because it's either love me because I gave my life for you, which is incredibly manipulative, mm-hmm. or I'm going to send you to hell for all of eternity. There, it's, it's, it's just not a logical train of thought.
2: Right, exactly.
1: But
0: we do like cause and effect
1: thinking. If you don't do this, then this will happen mm-hmm. uh, and we see it in in many of the concepts of people well, you got sick because of something you mm-hmm. you had this accident, but God wants to get your attention, so there is a cause and effect not a mindset and and hell just follows Hell is yeah. the ultimate of all of that because you didn't do something, you spend eternity being tormented,
0: right. So can you talk about, Sarah, you mentioned this on your video, talk about the process for you of, of letting go of that fear.
2: Letting go of that fear, that took, it took a, a while. I, I want to say maybe over a year, I think, even after I, I kind of came out to myself as an atheist. I actually, I went again to therapy. Or I went to see a, a therapist and I didn't know at the time that she was a, a Christian. She kind of, put that into our sessions, I didn't have anyone to talk to about this really other than my husband and just a few friends. But I, I wanted to talk to someone about the fear of hell. And I didn't really have access to that when I was going to talk about this in therapy sessions. I thought it was more of a secular thing, but I remember telling her, um, I think I'm an atheist. And she, her immediate response was, you need to reread your Bible because clearly you don't get it. So, and she also implemented some more Christian ideas um, into our sessions. And I, and I just realized, you know what, this isn't right. Um, she shouldn't be judging me. She shouldn't be. That's not what therapy should be. So I ended up finding someone else and it's been awesome. So that's one thing is secular therapy. And I know, again, maybe therapists can't really say that they're secular therapists. But again, that's what I really, really love about recovering from religion is they offer this. So, being able to talk to someone and just uh, flesh out some ideas and questions and not be judged for it and just, just being open, that helped so much. So, I think it was just conversation and time. It, I think and I, it took a bit of time to undo that fear. And I think I just had to be patient with myself and keep learning and keep learning to think critically and talking with a therapist or anyone. In my life, who was supportive and helpful, where you can explore those ideas, I think that's that's really what helped is all those things.
1: I think that's true in any area you know hell is a big one mm-hmm. but anytime we start having questions and doubts, uh, again to quote you in one of your videos you you talked about even your questions brought you shame and guilt. you said I thought my thoughts were sin. Mm-hmm. And, and we do come from that mindset that we're not allowed to ask questions or certain questions. And so I appreciated that you said that. And, and I think that's we, what we go through when we begin to rethink a lot of our stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's what was the shocking thing again, too, was the indoctrination and realizing that happened to me and realizing the damaging effects of just being indoctrinated alone and not knowing any other way than the Christian God's way. And not knowing how to think for yourself, and I was very docile, um but it took a lot of time to break out of that, and it's well worth it so th- things slowly began to get better. My life started changing
0: and I think that's what's so difficult is that my husband has said for me you know as 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 um now in my fifties that there are still things that I talk about as like I'm an evangelical because it's mm-hmm. so ingrained. And it, he said, you know, for somebody who's so analytical, how, how could you have stayed for so long? And I said, I'm analytical in the context of, those, of that faith. Right? I stayed there because that was all I knew. I didn't have any tools outside of that box to try to think of this differently. So I always thought with, well, God exists. Jesus is real. This, the word of God is true. Mm-hmm. And, and then I went from there and then I built my life from there. So breaking out of that context was what was difficult because, as you said, there really isn't a place to go. There wasn't a therapist that I knew. There wasn't family that I could talk to. And it was, you're just forging what feels like a new way. And fortunately, there are more places popping up that you've mentioned, Recovering from Religion, of course, being one of them. Mm -hmm. But there are more places that people can now go out and they can find more help than they have. And of course, there's Google.
2: Google, right. That's one thing that I I think... Is cool about social media as much as I. I kind of don't love social media, but that that is kind of cool how uh, people can come together and yeah. find some support. And I've seen this like happen on Twitter. I think I, I was listening to Megan Phelps Roper, who came from the Westboro Baptist Church, and she was talking about Twitter and how it helped her be able to have um, these better conversations with people and just honest conversations and be able to question and talk about ideas and that changes everything.
0: Where are you now? After, I don't know how long you've been out of the church, about four years, you said, or mm-hmm. four years when you started to go public with that. Where mm-hmm. are you now? What are the things that keep you up at night or the things that you still think about?
1: The
2: things that, you know what? It honestly, it hasn't been too much. I I, I do say I am an atheist. I, I'm just not convinced that God exists. And right now I'm kind of planning more posts to put on like in my YouTube videos and my blog just to be helpful. There's not a whole lot that keeps me up at night other than uh, our current uh, situation with politics, but you know, it
1: yeah. uh, yeah. keeps all of us yeah. up. Right? <laughs> and anybody who thinks that keeps them up.
2: Yeah. I'm like, what? Oh gosh, what did Trump do now? Oh no. Okay. <laughs> um, But that's, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Yeah. I, I'm, I guess recently I've been listening to like people like Elon Musk or like Sam Mm -hmm. Harris and them talk about AI and things like that. And I guess Steven Pinker is for it. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but (laughs) I I don't know. I'm kind of interested in that that conversation too. But you know what? I think maybe what keeps me up at night, that must, that must just be politics, Um, (laughs) but it doesn't really come back to religion, honestly. I've kind of, I don't fear a hell anymore. And I never thought I'd be able to say that. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird even saying it now. Like I never thought I'd be the person who's like, yeah, that this is just not a thing for me anymore. But if I can be helpful to others, then I think that's where my focus is.
0: Well,
1: on that, on that note, because uh, Tim had mentioned earlier, when you come to the place where, uh, as, as you have, where God is not real or you don't believe God is real and the Bible is not truth. It it can be like falling off of a cliff because, mm-hmm. you know, what is there now? And, and you've you've walked through that. If somebody is listening, because we have people that listen from every spectrum of of this journey, what would you tell them right now? What kind of wisdom from where you are? What would you tell them?
2: Oh, I I'd, I'd probably say everyone's situation is different and you have to figure out what's best for you. Again, I I really, I really love and admire the work that you do. Um, Recovering from Religion and this podcast, it is very helpful for people to be able to listen in on these conversations and to have help and support from an organization like Recovering from Religion. Just being able to talk to someone who is non-religious and evidence-based when it comes to therapy, that can be really helpful with perspective. I also think that when you leave your religion, like you said, it's, it's like This whole other life opens up and you can now reinvent your life. And that can also feel overwhelming. But I think you just have to take it at your own pace, take it a day at a time. And I think you you slowly, it becomes better with time. It really does.
0: Absolutely agree. What do you have planned for your followers? What videos are coming up? What are you going to be talking about? What should they be looking for?
2: Oh, goodness. I'm going to talk more about religion and atheism. Um, I also have some videos on trauma. I also am going to stick with some of the light content because some people do like the fitness stuff or food recipes, things that are kind of just simple. Um, but I do want to stick with these heavier topics because I, I I love putting those videos out and seeing kind of the feedback from people. Even when I do get pushback, it's all right. I'm just going to keep going with it for now. And I'm working on becoming a writer. And I want to be a speaker, so these are some things I'm working on. But I'm going to continue, yeah, with the videos.
0: I'm just curious, after our conversation earlier, how do you deal with the the haters, the people that post things on your blog or, you know, have something negative to say?
2: All right. Sometimes I like to look at what their perspective is, but I've realized recently I've been looking at it too much. So I've had to kind of change the settings on, over on YouTube. Just to see, like, just so when I log in, I don't just automatically see, like, hurtful messages that are comments. I've kind of blocked that. So I can log in at a certain time when I want to see those comments, just to see what people are saying. Um, But I also, it doesn't pop up right away. So I've changed the settings on social media, and that has been helpful for me. I've also talked with other, like, content creators, seeing how they kind of react to this. because. I don't know. I've been doing this for a while, but I've been more recently getting more pushback. So I'm kind of just now learning how to handle it. I kind of like to give myself some space from it and then I'll come back to it and either respond or just let it go.
1: It's a good life lesson. We we have a, a setting on our social media. Yeah. Uh, we need that same setting in our emotions. Right. Yeah. We sometimes right. just have to turn it off and, mm-hmm. and not listen to it because I'm with you. I get it as
0: well. You know what I like about it though is is it helps me see where people are. So mm-hmm. it helps me see what questions can I address based on their comments. Mm-hmm. What's not helpful are the ones that tell me I'm going to hell and use all kinds of explicit language to tell me that's why that's going to happen. Exactly. Doesn't, exactly. Doesn't right. make any right. sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the cut and, the cut and
1: paste Bible verses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. As if I've not. You know, I, I taught the Bible for 40 years, and, and so they'll paste something in there. And I want to just respond. Oh, I've never seen that before. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I understand that, and and you get it, and you just and I wrote a I wrote a blog several I think it was last year called "Listening to My Critics," and and I do like you. There are occasions I'll just go and read it, and and as Tim said, try to understand what motivates this. Where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. Is it a place of fear? Is it a place of privilege? Right. What am I touching in them that they're lashing out about? I, 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 it's not that I want to cater to them mm-hmm. or mollify them. I just want to understand sometimes.
2: Right. Right. That's true. I like to do the same kind of thing, like maybe like not assume bad intent, I guess, because you don't know where they're coming from. If it's like fear or something, um, being able to ask questions and just stay calm. Mm-hmm. and also making an argument if you want to, but you don't have to. You don't have to respond. Yeah,
1: I have a new policy that's been in place now for about uh, a year in my own personal life in relation to social media. I will not argue. Mm-hmm. I'll ask I'll ask questions. I'm open to discussions, even about the Bible right. and faith and religion, but I will not argue. As soon as it turns to name calling and ad hominem stuff, right. I'm gone. I will not do that it's not healthy for me and pardon the pun it's fruitless
2: that's true it's not helpful and it's not progressing the conversation it's not pushing it forward it's just it's not really doing anything
1: because you 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 know when you read some of these comments they've made up their mind right it's it's not about them having a discussion it's about them changing you Mm -hmm. so those kinds of conversations are not productive they're not going to go anywhere. But I don't mind having conversations. Uh, People on my Facebook page know that they are free to disagree with me. They're free to have their opinions, as long as they recognize it as opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm very quick to point that out, that just because you think this doesn't mean that's the way it is. And and so we can discuss even differences in politics and policy, um, but I don't allow them to promote a certain party or a certain president.
2: That's very cool. I like that. I like that community. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. It's, it's a good, disgust. I love my, I love my Facebook community. That's
2: very cool.
0: I always save my emails. I save, I save what they yes, send me and yes. I put them aside and then I go back and read them from time to uh-huh. time just to, just to get an idea about kind of where they're coming from. And, and then I write blogs about it.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. It's therapeutic as a writer, as a writer.
1: Writing is therapy and cathartic for me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, Sarah. So tell everybody where they can find you, what to expect, how to contact you.
2: Oh, sure. I post videos on my YouTube channel. It's just Sarah Roxdale. Sarah Roxdale's is my real name. But I've been using Sarah Roxdale as like my like, I guess, YouTube username, I guess. I could change that. But for now, it's Sarah Roxdale. It's R-O-C-K-S-D-A-L-E. And uh, Sarah with an H. And I usually post things on Twitter too. Like I'll ask people questions on Twitter. And again, it's just Sarah Roxdale and just uh, add to my blog every week. So um, usually I post everything through Twitter just to let everyone know what's going on. But that's that's probably the best way to find me.
1: Well, I definitely recommend that if you're listening to us, that you go and watch her YouTube videos because they are fascinating. They're interesting. And the way she says things. I mean, Sarah, you brought me to tears a couple of times. Oh. So I totally recommend that people listen and watch
0: your YouTube videos. Oh,
2: thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: And I especially found the makeup tutorials quite helpful. I'm not going to admit it, right. but I did. Right. Right. <laughs> Bill. Bill, we're going to talk about my hair later. Okay, we'll do that. I'll stay on you about it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, Yeah,
2: thank you for having me. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.